I'd like to invite you to uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 29. Genesis, chapter 29, as we make our way through this book, considering the family history of Isaac, we uh, come uh, and consider today the uh, uh, Jacob and his family, his uh, growing family. And so I'd like to begin reading for us uh, in verse 31 of chapter 29. And we'll go down to verse 24 of chapter 30. So once, once again, let us give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's servant, uh, servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb, 
She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us understanding and knowledge and faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. And they lived happily ever after. That's what fairy tales would have us to believe happens uh, when a beautiful princess meets her Prince Charming and they are wedded. Well, Jacob went on a journey to find himself a wife, and he found what he thought would be a, a, a beautiful princess. He found Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and agreeing to work uh, with, uh, for seven years for free in order to obtain a wife I think it's fair to say Jacob got more than he had bargained for. For the morning after his wedding night, he woke up and he saw not beautiful Rachel, but his less attractive, unattractive, older sister Leah. And so here we see uh, uh, what happens uh, when human sin and error comes into the equation. We don't always live happily ever after Those first seven years that Jacob labored, uh, we saw in Scripture, was a breeze for the love that he had for Rachel. But the next seven years, the next seven years that he had to labor for free in order to obtain uh, Rachel uh, the the second time, uh, were not a breeze. Uh, They did not live happily ever after, but as we see in our passage today, the next seven years were characterized by strife and animosity as Jacob finds himself married to two feuding sisters. Now, just to be clear, uh, when when we read of Jacob being married to uh, not one, but two women, and even taking their handmaidens as as wives, I think it's very important for us to, to say that this is sinful. Polygamy is a sin. Even though it is not explicitly condemned, in the Old Testament, uh, we see that polygamy runs counter to God's original design for marriage in the beginning. Even as our Lord reminded us in Matthew 19, it was not so in the beginning where God created one man and one woman to be in a monogamous, loving relationship. And so even though things are described in Scripture, it does not mean that they are prescribed. Uh, And as a matter of fact, every time polygamy is described in Scripture, it is shown with negative connotations. The very first person to take more than one wife to himself was sinful Lamech back in chapter 2, the one who, who, with much hubris, exalted himself to the level of God. We also saw the episode of Sarah and Hagar, with, uh, with Sarah giving Hagar to Abraham to be his wife, It only resulted in sin and strife and hostility. And the same thing can be said here as we consider uh, chapter 30, where we see the sin that results as as uh, as um, the sin that results as a result of the fact that Jacob is married to more than one woman and uh, and sisters, no less. But this unfortunate situation is made even worse by the fact 
that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. In fact, as we see in our passage today, he hated Leah. And so once again, we see the sin of favoritism rearing its ugly head. The very same thing that divided Jacob's family as his mother loved him more than Esau and and Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Here, Jacob, we see him repeating that same sin as he favors one wife and despises the other. And so it is into this morass of human sin and depravity that the Lord intervenes to show mercy to the unloved one and the one who is most helpless. And that's what we see in verse 31 when we see that the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and so he opened her womb. By granting her children, the Lord gave Leah something that her younger, more beautiful sister did not have. For we are told in this verse that she was barren. Once again, we see this pattern of the wife of the patriarch being barren. It it was true of Sarah, it was true of Rebecca, and now it is true of Rachel. For some reason, in God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, withheld children from these women in order to show and to teach them that new life would only come through him and not through ordinary uh, human works. And yet it was Leah whose womb was open. She is, she is abundantly fruitful. She's popping out children left and right. And so here we see the Lord enabling her to fulfill what was considered in the ancient world the primary role of women, that is to give birth to children, to continue the, the line, the posterity of the husband, and also to ensure that she would be cared for in old age as her sons would be able to protect her. And so the Lord opening her womb, granting to her children, we read of her firstborn, her and Jacob's firstborn son, in verse 32, where Leah is able to name her son, and she names him Reuben, which literally means see a son. And so here she's, she's so thrilled, she names him, uh, you know, probably what she said when he was born, a son. It's a boy, giving thanks to God giving praise to God for granting to her a son, but also in this naming ceremony, we also see this, sadly, we see her expressing her vain hope that Jacob will somehow now love her. Now that she's born him a son, she hopes, well, now hopefully my husband will love me. And as we consider each and every birth of one of these sons where Leah and Rachel are able to name their sons and give a a brief explanation, I think it's important for us to note that um, when they do this, the names and the explanations that Leah and Rachel give at the birth of each son are their opinions alone and do not necessarily express the authorized interpretation of God's designs. I think it's important to keep that in mind. This is what's going through their head and not necessarily the divine interpretation of what God is doing. And so these feuding sisters, each wanting what the other has, Leah wanting love, Rachel wanting children, they began to use the birth of these sons as opportunities to hurl barbed insults at the other as these sisters are in a competition with one another. Leah's hope that a son would somehow win over her husband's love was sadly not realized. And so the Lord blesses her with yet another son, verse 33. And and she she once again gives credit to the Lord, naming him Simeon, which literally means heard. And so she says, the Lord has heard me. And so she names her son Simeon. And yet again, she expresses a wish and hope 
that somehow now her husband would love her. In rapid succession, she's pregnant yet again and bears yet another son. And here she hopes, finally, that having borne three sons to her husband, that somehow she would be attractive to him and attached to him. And so so she names him Levi, which literally means attached. And finally, when she bore yet another son, she simply praises the Lord for his gracious provision without expressing a desire for Jacob's love. It seems at this point that Leah is resigned to the fact that Jacob will never love her. And so what does she do? Well, she finds delight in her children, and she gives credit to God alone. In verse uh, 35, naming her son Judah, which means praise. And yet, sadly, also at this point, she turns this into a competition with her sister having born four sons and her sister remaining barren. And so at this point, we read, for some reason, some inexplicable reason, she ceases bearing children, although this is not a permanent state. As we'll see, she's conceiving again in, chapter, er, in verse 17. And so now we go to chapter 30 in verse 1, where we see now the other sister, Rachel, uh, the, the beautiful loved sister, responding to the fact that her, sister, her, her other sister gets, uh, is continually having children. It's important to keep in mind here that as we read this chapter, when we consider that 11 children are born in the span of seven years, clearly this suggests that these pregnancies are not all consecutive, but, uh, but many of them were probably concurrent with one another. So just picture Jacob's camp, right? Picture his, his household with with you know, probably at least two women being pregnant at any given time over the course of these seven years. And so in, in verse 1 of chapter 30, we're actually going back into time uh, uh, before perhaps uh, Judah is born or even perhaps Levi is born. And Rachel looks at her sister and she is green with envy. She desperately wants what Leah has. Uh, we see it even in her expression as she demands Jacob to give her children or else she will die. Sadly, in I, tragically, uh, in an ironic sense, it's, only, it's actually by having children that, that Rachel will meet her demise as she dies in giving birth to her second son, as we'll see in chapter 35. And yet in response, we see the, the first and only interaction between Jacob and Rachel, the, the you know, Prince Charming and the beautiful princess, this, this uh, match made in heaven. The only interaction that we read of them having in Scripture is an argument. It's a fight where Jacob responds in anger. And he says, am I in the place of God? It's interesting here, the only, uh, the only words that Jacob speaks in this passage of Scripture are, in fact, an admission of his utter, utter inability to bring about children. This ambitious schemer is reduced simply to a breeding stud in our passage today. He's just led uh, back and forth. He has almost as if he has uh, no uh, free will of his own as he is uh, just torn. Uh, his attention is demanded by every woman in this passage. And so Jacob in despair, uh, Jacob's despair and angry response saying, I'm not in the place of God. It should be found in stark contrast to the response that Isaac, his father, gave when he found out that his wife, Rebekah, was barren. Remember back in chapter 25, what happened? Rachel was barren, and so Isaac 
prayed to the Lord. And so here again, we see this contrast. Jacob not approaching the Lord in prayer, but throwing up his hands in anger and saying, I'm not in the place of God. And so what did we see happen? Well, in verse 3, Rachel has a solution. Echoing the words of, uh, of Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rachel wants to employ the culturally acceptable custom of surrogate motherhood by giving her servant, to Bil- uh, her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife. And so according to this custom, she would give her servant to Jacob as a wife, and the child that would be born from that union would, would be legally considered Rachel's Rachel's child, which is why the child that is born is named by Rachel. And as as that child is born, we see her naming this child in in verse 5, where she says, uh, she, she sees that this is a vindication. She says, God has judged me. Um, literally naming her son judged, which means Dan, or Dan, which means judged in Hebrew. It's as if she's saying to her sister, look, God has vindicated me. He listens to me as well. And so again, this barbed insult uh, lofted at her sister through the naming of this child. Bilhah conceives again and bears another son uh, to Jacob, which uh, uh, Rachel names uh, Naphtali, which literally means wrestling. You see, like Jacob and Esau before, Leah and Rachel are in an intense sibling rivalry. Uh, you know, she sees this as a wrestling match. And for some reason, she thinks that she's ahead at this point because her handmaid Bilhah has given two sons to, uh, to Jacob. Which, by the way, when, we get to, when, when you get to the law, when the law is, is monitoring and, and governing the situation of polygamy, not condoning it, but merely just uh, trying to keep a, a, a lid on it, in Leviticus 18.18, 18, one type of polygamy that is explicitly forbidden is marrying two sisters. And it's almost as if this situation was in mind uh, you don't want to marry two sisters because of the sibling rivalry which would come as a result. And that's exactly what we see in our passage today. This, this wrestling match that is literally going on between the women. In verse 9 through 13, not to be undone, when Leah uh, sees that she is unable to conceive herself, what does she do? Well, she gives her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. And the two sons that come from that union, uh, she names Gad, which means good fortune, and Asher, which means happy. Yeah, I think it's important to note here that Leah is happy not because she has Jacob's love, because she doesn't, but she's happy because she's outdoing her sister. She's winning in in the competition that they're having with one another. And so we come to verse 14 where we have this little episode, which is a, 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 we pause for this episode to see that this strife between the sisters that's been simmering below the surface is now breaking out into the open as they have a direct confrontation with one another regarding these mandrakes that Leah's son Reuben finds. Mandrakes uh, uh, were considered in the ancient world to be an aphrodisiac and also a cure to infection. sorry, infertility, which is why Rachel so desperately wants to get these mandrakes and why Leah is very hesitant to give them to her. And yet in a desperate attempt to become pregnant, Leah goes to her sister and says, give me some of your son's mandrakes. 
Well, here we see in, in verse 15, Leah's response, we see really what's, what is at the heart of the issue as far as Leah is concerned. Remember, Jacob never considered Leah to be his true wife. He, he, she, was fo- she was foisted upon him. And so that's why he never loved her. He never really accepted her as a legitimate wife. And yet here we see in Leah's response, she sees that she considers her, herself Jacob's first and only wife, and Rachel is the imposter. She says, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Are you going to take away my son's mandrakes as well? Well, Rachel is so desperate to obtain these mandrakes in the hope that she would be able to have a child as a result of them. She's willing to pay a price. And so in exchange for these mandrakes, what does she say? She's willing to permit Jacob to sleep in Leah's tent that night. Notice who's wearing the pants here. Notice who's in charge of the whole household. Rachel says, okay, I'll let you stay. I'll I'll let him stay with you tonight in return for these mandrakes. Now, Now, apparently at some point, Jacob no longer visited Leah's tent Was this after she had ceased bearing, as we were told at the end of chapter 29? Or was it as a result of the fact, uh, or was was the fact that she ceased bearing a result of the fact that Jacob didn't go to her tent? And did Rachel have anything to do with this? These are questions that are left unanswered, but we are left to speculate here as, uh, as, as Rachel seems to have the authority and the ability to determine where Jacob rests his head. Regardless of what were the motivations here, later on when we get to the law, this is exactly what the law would forbid in Exodus 21 in the situation where a man would have two wives. He is not to show favoritism to one, giving everything to one and neglecting the other. And yet that's exactly what appears to be the case with Leah and Jacob. And so Jacob, having spent the whole day working for his uncle Laban out in the field, Comes in, from, uh, comes in from the field in the evening and finds out that he has more work to do. He has been hired by his wife, uh, uh, by her giving these mandrakes to her sister. Uh, literally, the word here is the same exact word that is, has been used by, the, by Uncle Laban. What shall your wages be? And now here, uh, uh, repeating that same type of sin, Leah has hired her husband to come into her tent. What should have been a matter of love and intimacy in a marriage is reduced merely to a commercial exchange in order for Leah to get what she wants. And yet, nevertheless, the Lord is gracious, and he grants Leah's request, although she has very mixed motives, he grants Leah's request for another son, whom she names Issachar, which means wages. And so again, because she was able to hire her husband, uh, he, he got his wages by naming him, uh, uh, she, she recognizes that by naming the son Issachar. By the way, it's important to note that this uh, superstition about the mandrakes is dispelled with in, uh, in our passage by the simple fact that Leah, who is without the mandrakes, is able to conceive, whereas Rachel, who has them, remains barren. And so this plan on Rachel's part to get pregnant by, by eating these mandrakes 
she, uh, her plan actually backfires as far as she's concerned because she remains childless and her sister is able to have not one but two more sons as a result of this. And that is the, the, the sixth and final son that she bears in verse 20, naming him Zebulon, which literally means honor. And it's as if she's saying, if I can't have love, at least I can get some respect. Bearing her husband six sons, as well as a daughter that we're told of in verse 21, born sometime after this. Now, Dinah is mentioned here, I think, for a couple reasons. Not necessarily because she is necessarily the only daughter that Jacob has, but she's mentioned here because she will appear again in chapter 34. So it's important to know uh, who she is and whose daughter she is and who are her older brothers uh, when we get to chapter 34. But also what happens with the mentioning of Dinah is it rounds out the entire number of children born to Jacob while living in Haran in exile to the number 12 which I don't need to tell you, is a very important number in redemptive history. And yet, after all of these births, remember at this point, Rachel has remained childless herself. She remains barren until we get to verse 22, where we read that God remembered Rachel. God remembered Rachel. Our passage began with the Lord showing mercy to Leah because she was hated And now we see the Lord displaying his covenant faithfulness to Rachel by opening her womb. This phrase that the Lord remembered her does not mean that God had somehow forgot about Rachel. It's not as if he was uh, blessing these other women and thought, oh yeah, I got to bless Rachel too. I forgot about that. No. When scripture speaks of the Lord remembering something, it is used in in a covenantal context to describe the fact that the Lord, as it were, brings to the forefront of his mind his covenant promises, the obligations that he has sworn he would do, and then he acts upon them. That's what he did back in chapter 8. When Noah was in the ark, it said the Lord remembered Noah, and he caused the winds to blow to cause the waters to recede. The same thing is said in Exodus 2, when the Israelites are in bondage, in slavery in Egypt, and they cry out to the Lord, we read that the Lord heard and that the Lord remembered his covenant promises. It's not as if he forgot, but it's as if he's going to act upon them now. And that's what he does here with Rachel in opening her womb, causing her to be fruitful and multiply. And the Lord listens to her. Now, in order for the Lord to listen to Rachel, it's as it's uh, Rachel would had to have had to pray. And so at some point throughout this time, Rachel's cry of despair, give me children or I die, turns into a prayer of faith. Rachel has gone through a lot throughout this passage as she's feuded and and disputed with her sister, but one thing she's had to learn is she cannot rest upon her own ability. She cannot rely upon the fact that she is pretty and privileged, but ultimately she has to rely upon the Lord to give her uh, the child she wants. And so the Lord answers her prayer, and she, uh, she bears a son, and in a play on words, she thanks the Lord for removing her reproach. The, the name Joseph sounds like the Hebrew word for remove. She, he's removed my reproach, but also she turns this naming ceremony into a prayer that God would add another son. For you see, the name Joseph means, may he add. And that's why she says, may he add to me, yet another son. 
Well, the Lord will add to her another son, but as we, as we notice, sadly, that that will be the cause of her death as well, uh, as, as we get to later in the book of Genesis. But stepping back, as we appreciate this passage of Scripture, uh, one thing that I think is certain is that there's a lot of children being born, right? Twelve kids in the course of seven years. This is a contrast to what we have been used to seeing uh, previously in the book of Genesis. As the Lord promised uh, to Abraham that he would cause him to be fruitful and that he would multiply him, that his descendants would be as the sands of the seashore, we, we had a hard time realizing how that would come about. For after you know, 25 years of waiting, as far as God is concerned, Abraham and Sarah have only one son. And then when Isaac comes around and, and finds out that Rebekah is barren, they have to wait 20 years, and what do they have? Well, they have twins. So we go from one son to twins to a bustling household, to 12 children being born in the course of seven years. And so here we see the Lord really upping the ante, causing his people to be fruitful and multiplying. And although we may say that this is a highly unorthodox manner of church expansion, the Lord nevertheless used it to create his own people. We went from one lonely exile, one man, to a bustling family, And later on, this bustling family will turn into a company of 70 as they go down to Egypt. And once we get to Exodus chapter 1, we see the Lord turn this family into a nation. So that is what the Lord is doing. And this is another, this is a major leap forward in redemptive history as the Lord expands his people. And we go from, this also marks the transition Uh, In redemptive history, from the three patriarchs, where only one man continues the line, the covenant line of the people of God, to a 12-tribed nation, where all the sons share in the inheritance of the people of God. And in this transition, things begin to change. Whereas previously, someone like Ishmael was eventually excluded because he was born of a slave woman. Remember in chapter 21, Sarah says, cast out the son of the slave woman, and the Lord tells Abraham, listen to what uh, she says, and, and uh, Paul picks that up in Galatians 4, the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the child of promise. Well, that's no longer the case here with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. They are included as full members in the covenant community. And so, so free or slave, loved or unloved, beautiful or unattractive, it doesn't matter. All the children born here are considered the people of God. And moreover, the fact that half of the tribes, including the priestly line of Levi and the messianic line of Judah, the fact that half of the tribes come from Leah, the unloved one, shows that things that we typically view as advantages in this world, whether it be beauty, whether it be Uh, uh, intelligence, whether it be power or money or any of those things, all those things that we typically value in the world are of no value in the kingdom of God. The fact that Leah is able to bear half of the tribes, seven children in all, and the one through whom Christ would come. Keep in mind, if it wasn't for Leah, we wouldn't have Jesus. That teaches us something about our calling. 
how it is that the Lord gathers us, those his people living in exile as he continues to gather, preserve, and defend for himself a people. Paul teaches us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I suppose in the situation of Leah, not many of you were beautiful. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we consider this passage, pretty much the only thing that humans bring to the equation is sin and strife and hostility. And yet through that, we see the Lord being faithful to build, establish, and multiply a people for himself. And he continues to do that, uh, even today, with us as the people of God. Amen?